United Planners, an RIA and broker-dealer structured as a limited partnership, providing partners and associates an unfettered program to conduct fee-based and commission business for over 30 years. Advisors are offered the flexibility of being independent with a broad choice of custodians under the firm RIA or their own independent RIA. Welcome to The Healthy Advisor, a podcast from wealthmanagement.com focused on advisors' personal well-being and healing. I'm Diana Britton, Managing Editor of wealthmanagement.com, and in this podcast, we explore some of the struggles and personal development issues facing advisors and financial services professionals, and how to get to a place of healing for mind, body, and spirit. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Healthy Advisor podcast, and thanks for joining us. As you may know, this is the podcast focused on financial advisor health and wellness, and today's guest knows a thing or two about that. His name is Vance Bars. He's a wealth strategist and founder of Your Dedicated Fiduciary, a practice under Commonwealth Financial Network's corporate RIA in San Diego, California, and Prosper, Texas. And we're coming to you live from the Wealth Management Edge Conference in Hollywood, Florida. Vance, thank you so much for being on the show. It's great to be here in person with you and meet you in person. Conferences are back live (laughs) in person. It's amazing. And thank you so much for having me on. Yeah. So Vance has been, you know, very successful at growing his firm since its founding in 2015. But we're going to talk a little bit about a little bit of a darker time in his life. Um, Before starting his own practice, Vance went through a period of profound grief and lost several people close to him. And that led to a period of, of introspection, right, about you know, what he was going to do with his life, how he was spending his time personally and professionally. Um, so just Vance, let's back up a little bit. Tell us about your early career in financial services and how did you end up in the alternative space? I know you were working uh, at Altegris. Yeah, I was. So if you go back to 2007, everyone in Southern California was making $350,000 a year as a subprime mortgage broker. (laughs) I wasn't one of them, by the way. And I remember I went to this uh, happy hour spot uh, for this business networking event. And I was standing outside and I saw all of these very fancy cars showing up to the valet and these guys got out with these great big Breitling watches and I have a near photographic memory. And fast forward 20 minutes, I kind of bump into these guys and go, hey, what do you guys do for a living, right? Like I saw these nice cars and these watches and they all kind of laughed and they go, we're loan originators. I go, oh, like mortgage brokers. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're mortgage brokers. Oh, okay. Uh, and they go, well, don't you own a home? Mm-hmm. Well, no, I'm 27 years old. I have like $15,000 saved up to my name. And I rent, and they go, you dummy, you need to put zero money down, get a teaser loan for the next three to five years, and in three or five years, when the loan resets to prime, you'll be making more money. And mm-hmm. a light bulb went off in my head, and I went, wait a minute, how many of these things are you guys doing? They go, this is all we do. And I did some math real quick, and I knew enough about the banking system to understand that that situation, if, you know, replete throughout society, right, and systemic in the banking uh, system uh, would not end well. I didn't predict, you know, the peak to valley in the S&P 500 or, you know, the havoc that would ensue thereafter. But 
it just didn't feel right. And uh, whenever my gut tells me that something isn't right and my math is done in my head to confirm that, um, you know, it's Houston, we have a problem. So my then boss, I was in behavioral health care mm-hmm. as an administrator for the small behavioral health care company in La Jolla. My then boss introduced me to the guy who started Altegris, and that guy is John's son. Mm-hmm. And I remember going in to interview with John, and we sit down, and uh, he looks at my resume, and he's like, well, kid, uh, I know you've done some great things for my buddy who I met through YPO, but you know what? We have nothing for you. I mean, this is the hedge fund world. This is where people end their careers mm. and, and not start their careers in finance. You know, you have no sales experience. You're not licensed. And I stood up, and I looked at him. I said, I'm not going to leave you alone until you give me a job. And nine months later to the day, he gave me a job. And wow. that's how I ended up at Altegris, which was in 2007, right before the Great Recession of 2008. Yeah, exciting time to get into finance, right? Sometimes it's better to be lucky than smart, right? Yeah. And, and a lot of the investments that Altegris had at the time, you know, they would zig when other things would zag, and it was non-correlation, global diversification, but you look at managed futures yeah, as an right. investment strategy and an asset class, and I cut my teeth raising capital for Winton, Brevin Howard, you know, Citadel, QIM, Paulson, SAC, and a lot of these big institutional names. And again, it was just kind of being in the right place at the right time before that precipitous drop. And that's what gave me so much insight into financial advisors because so many of the advisors that I was calling and meeting with in 2007 essentially told me to go pound sand, yet, in March, April, and May of 2009, they were begging me to come in and meet with their clients and do a presentation on all the investment strategies that weathered the storm well. And at that point in time, as we know now, in hindsight, it was too late. Yeah. Yeah, I used to, um, I used to cover, you know, uh, institutional asset management, and I used to, like, go to these, like, elaborate, um, you know, hedge fund Christmas parties and do shots with, like, the heads of sales and try to get them to tell me all their secrets. <laughs> And then now I don't think they do those big parties anymore. What was your experience like as a wholesaler at Altegris? You know, what did you sort of learn about the advisor space and what advisors are like? And it was a fantastic, industry? phenomenal, educational, transformational experience. I mean, truly, we had a culture there at that point in time that was unparalleled. I mean, it was it was this brotherhood of camaraderie and uh, just a bond that I don't know that I will ever experience again in my professional career because it was a small enough firm Mm -hmm. where we got to know each other really well. It wasn't a huge corporate conglomerate and we were bringing strategies to the financial advisory and intermediary community. And, and I know that, you know, clients of mine will listen to that and they go, intermediaries, what do you mean? You know, to wirehouses like Merrill Lynch and Morgan Stanley and UBS and independent broker dealers like Commonwealth and, of course, registered investment advisors and family offices. And it, it was just such a fun time in life because I'm in my late 20s. I'm living out of a suitcase. It was, it was just, it, it was fun until it wasn't. And we'll get to that in, in a little while. Um, but the firm culture was great. And... I didn't realize that at the time, by going in and teaching these wealth management firms and financial advisors on how to use institutional alternative investments for their high net worth clients, by virtue of that, 
Like mm-hmm. being in that environment, I learned what these private wealth advisors do for their clients, way more importantly, what they don't do, advanced planning strategies. Like how do you transfer a portfolio of real estate or how do you transfer uh, one or four of your companies that you founded to your children? Or what, do you, you know, what are the 17 strategies that you implement before a liquidity event? A lot of those things weren't being done for those profiles, which mm-hmm. I didn't think much of at the time. But then when, when my life kind of transitioned uh, from, from that era to what it is now, I had a lot of time to think about what matters most. And I realized that there were a lot of planning gaps that existed in the industry. And that was you know, really my calling, which has ultimately become my raison d'etre, if you will. Yeah. So I want to talk about that time in your life a little bit. Um, so you told me there was an 18-month period when you had five close family members pass away and your grandmother, who I know you were really close to, had a massive stroke. Um, tell me about that time in your life. What happened? Yeah, that was a very challenging <laughs> time frame you know life is what happens to us as we're implementing our plans and you hear these motivational quotes like it's always a beautiful sunny day out there right above the clouds <laughs> right <laughs> but i grew up with this misbelief that money brings happiness because in my own family i saw that the lack of it or the arguments over it really served as a source of disunion. Mm-hmm. We don't even teach financial literacy in this country, right? And in the solipsism of youth, I falsely concluded that having currency equates to happiness for whatever reason. And some of the happiest people that I know personally have not much of a net worth, and some of the most miserable people that I know have more money than they know what to do with, right? right? And it's all relative. But I had this desire to make a mark and prove myself and build. And I found myself as a partner at a firm for a very you know, short amount of time, a very small period, toward the end of this 18-month window. What happened in that 18-month window really changed who I am and what I do. And as you mentioned, there, there were five family members who died, um, three of whom were very, very close to me. Mm. I mean, they were my family that I spent a ton of time with outside of my neo-local family, you know, growing up in my house. And I quit my job. I broke up with my girlfriend of five years. And my life bucket was just kind of turned upside down. And I remember distinctly waking up in a hotel room in Buckhead in Atlanta and thinking to myself, you know, I've lived out of a suitcase for all these years. I fly first class. I lecture at conferences. I know the who's who in the wealth management industry, and it's this great big empty. Mm. And my grandmother had a stroke that was a, a you know massive in nature to the point where she would not walk again. And I thought, you know what? This is my opportunity to just walk away from this career, reset, restart, recalibrate. I was very deeply unhappy at the end of that career for multiple reasons, right? Much of which was because of how empty it was in that role. Mm. I was no longer at Altegris at that point in time. Um, 
But it was also an opportunity to go and be of service to my grandmother, and I had the ability to do that. So when she had her stroke, I thought at the time that it was going to be a temporary thing. I went, you know what? I can always go back to wholesaling. I can always go back to doing whatever it is in the industry. So I packed all my stuff up from Tampa, Florida, where I was living at the time, and moved into her house in Kingwood, West Virginia. You could wow. Google Kingwood, West Virginia. They would really enjoy the <laughs> SEO traffic, I'm sure. I mean, it's, it's this two-stoplight community. 3,000 people live there. But that's where my mom's family is from, and that's yeah. where I, I grew up spending so much time uh, you know, for holidays and so forth. And my grandmother was in the nursing home for about nine months, and I went and visited with her most days. Now, one of the family members that died was my biological father, whom I had never met in person, mm. but I'd only spoken to wow. a handful of times on the phone. Mm -hmm. And I remember growing up thinking, why did he leave? You know, these feelings of isolation, feelings of desertion, feelings of abandonment. These are things that I wasn't even in tune with as a human being. Yeah until later in life. And so I move into my grandmother's house and I found his widow, because he had since died, right? I found his widow, got in touch with her. And she goes, hey, your biological father's motorcycle riding friends, he was in this motorcycle club, would like to meet you. I would like to meet you. And so I go down to Southern West Virginia which has a reputation in and of itself. Like when you think West Virginia, this is the place. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, it's very mountainous. They mm -hmm. only have sun from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., right? Because of, of how, you know, hilly the region is and yeah. so forth. West and Virginia. It's a, it, yeah. Yep. Mountain mama. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like this is the place that you think about when you stereotype West Virginia. And I went there and met them and... I remember growing up saying to myself, you know, if I ever meet him, what questions will I ask? Or if he dies before I'm ever able to meet him, what am I going to say at his gravesite? Mm. And his widow and this motorcycle club. Remember, I'm coming from the hedge fund world, right? Very important, very, yeah. you know, whatever, just literally whatever, to hanging out with these pretty hardcore motorcycle folks, <laughs> salt of the earth. Mm -hmm. um, and they ceremoniously gave me his Harley. Now, wow. I had been riding Harleys since I was 16, but to be ceremoniously given the Harley Davidson that your biological father rode, and he always wanted to ride around the country, but he got lung cancer and died. Because guess what? If you mm -hmm. smoke two or three packs of cigarettes a day, in time, that's a risk that might materialize. So I get this bike, I ride to the gravesite, and I remember standing over the gravesite and looking at the headstone, and I had this 45 minute. <clears throat> Sorry. Take your time. Take your time. We like causes on this show. I had this 45 minute one way conversation. Where I was able, pardon me, sorry. You can take your time. Where I was able to say the things that I wanted to say and share the things that I needed to share.
<clears throat> and really to finally just accept that the reason he wasn't there wasn't because of me. It wasn't me. Like, mm-hmm. it wasn't my fault. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was not my fault that, um, that he left. And um, I had a level of closure in that moment in time. My hedge fund career had ended. I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. I just knew that all of these family members had died. And this 800-pound weight that I had been carrying on my shoulders unknowingly, emotionally and spiritually, for 34 years at that time, was gone. Mm. It was gone. Wow. I mean, this was such a huge variable in my life growing up. And it might sound so silly to a lot of people. It might sound like, what's the concern? You had an adopted dad, but you grow up with this feeling of why did this person leave? And it's hard to not think that somehow you had a role in that, right? And I remember standing there and I turned, and it's at the, the very top of this hill. And I turned around. He's literally the last headstone at the top of this hill. And I turned around and I looked at this absolutely beautiful, sunny valley. Not a cloud in the sky. And I thought, okay, I now have closure. Mm. Right? And I realized in that moment that much of what motivated me as a human being was to try and fill this void this vacuum that I didn't even realize that I had, right? Why did I want to be a neurosurgeon? Why did I want to, you don't just get into finance, you got to get in the hedge fund space. I mean, a lot of that was, was by luck, but if given the options, go big or go home, as they say, right. right? Why is that? Is that because you're really motivated or is that because of an inherent character flaw that stems from feelings of less than? Right. Mm -hmm. And the self-centered fears that a lot of human beings have that they don't openly talk about, particularly in this business, by the way. This is a very judgmental business. You're right. It's all about perception. It's all about how you look. It's all about the AUM. It's all about the awards. It's all, 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 all. And all of my perception on life radically changed in a very short amount of time because... I'm living in his house, well, living, pardon me. I'm living in my grandmother's house, but I would go down to Southern West Virginia and I would stay in his house with his widow and ride around Mm. on his Harley with his motorcycle club, with his wife sitting behind me, Mm -hmm. his widow. Yeah. Her name is Lisa. Hi, Lisa. (laughs) You're going to get this. And uh, special hello to all the crew down there. You know who you are. (laughs) And then when my grandmother died... I got on that Harley and I went on the trip that my biological father was never able to go on. And I rode around the country for a little over a year. I had no responsibility, no accountability, nothing to do other than to just live. Yeah. Because I felt like this huge emotional storm that was the product of all of these things that I couldn't control or stop Mm -hmm. happened. And I get emotional because it's like, it's, Grief is something that it's hard to 
let go of. It's hard to process. I'm, um, I'm very in tune with the emotionality of it. I'm very open about it. I don't have an issue sharing this with people because I think that this industry in particular needs more of a true human touch and that mm -hmm. vulnerability and that intimacy that is devoid in the pursuit of excellence. Because at the end of the day, life is in session and I have a much more fulfilling life now. Yeah. So tell me about sort of, I didn't realize that you had gone on the ride for, for so long. What were some of the realizations that you had on along the journey? Oh, it was amazing. I encourage everyone with safety, of course, <laughs> like to go on some type of spiritual expedition, however that is manifested. It sounds so funny to hear myself say that, but it was just the most liberating, freeing, exhilarating experience because when you ride a Harley Davidson or any motorcycle, I mean, you're literally flirting with death. You are walking on the edge. By the way, I don't ride motorcycles anymore. I don't. It's one of the most dangerous things you could possibly do. Yeah. I'm so lucky to have my daughter and my son and my wife and the health that I now have and the realizations, like I live a very fulfilled life. And if it had not been that experience, I would not cherish the things that I do today. Yeah. On that trip, I had ample windshield time, if you will, to think about what matters most in life. And it wasn't landing, you know, the top Baron's advisor at a 10% allocation. It wasn't speaking at whatever industry conference to try and build relationships with financial advisors. It had nothing to do with anything material. Um, I remember I went to Sturgis. That was amazing. So I get to Sturgis in 2014. Mm. And, you know, it's this great big biker rally. And I had always watched this show called Deadliest Catch. Okay. On yeah, fishing. Yeah, exactly. Fishing show. So... I went into this three-leveled biker bar, and I ran into Josh Harris, who is the son of the captain of the Cornelia Marie. Okay. So he and his brother were on the show, and are still on the show, and their father, Phil, had a massive stroke on the show, and they filmed, like, the whole thing, right? It was oh, wow. the, the whole thing. So I meet Josh, and I go, hey, you're Josh Harris. I'm like, I have to talk to you about something. And he's going, okay, what? I go, <laughs> your dad and my grandmother had the same medical event. And we talked about it and bonded instantly over it. And I've never met a stranger. And he's hugely funny. I mean, the guy's, he's just, he's a riot. So we hit it off really well. And we hung out for a few days in Sturgis. And then when I was going from Sturgis down to Denver, I remember thinking, because I, I, I was so deep in thought that I missed the left turn, literally the left turn that I was supposed to make and had to backtrack about 75 miles. But I'm cruising along. I had a great big beard at the time that I would braid and I had this long hair. I mean, I literally looked the opposite of the former career. I was, yeah. I was alive for the first time. And I remember thinking, you know, I know a bunch about the wealth management industry and what I want the public to know. I can't change the industry, but I bet I can 
help make it better through education and through working directly with clients who have been underserved. And at the time I'm thinking, well, this is what I was making when I was wholesaling. And I tell the public, you know, it's consulting and educating financial advisors because I was teaching these private wealth advisors and their investment committees how to use institutional investments mm -hmm. for all the reasons that we in the industry understand, but it, the public doesn't understand what a wholesaler is. And in that role, it wasn't just a wholesaler. It was really a CPM slash wholesaler role. And in any event, I just thought I could do this. I'll give it a shot. And that's when the decision was made. And I ended up riding out to Seattle. The Harley broke down. Mm. Josh Harris and a couple of the guys from the show saw that I checked into this hotel in Renton, which is south of Seattle. Like, dude, we got to hang out. We're coming down. Your bike is broken. You got to live with us. So I find myself, I'm living in Josh Harris's house for like <laughs> six weeks, right? I'm going, what has happened to my life? I, <laughs> I could not believe it. Where do, Here, where do they live? In Washington, okay. outside of Seattle. Okay. So I go into the house and it was so surreal because there's all these pictures from the show that I've watched for all these years. And it was a gigantic house. And it was just a fun, uh, it was just a great big party. We had a ton of fun, it was amazing. And I lived there for six weeks and then he ended up moving down to Orange County and I came down on the trip. So my bike, that Harley, that belonged to my biological father was in Josh Harris's dad's storage unit until I got back to San Diego and then I had it shipped down. I mean, it was just, yeah. it was just the whole thing was so surreal. So I got to San Diego and I thought, well, I have to do something. And I put a Facebook post up and I invited the financial advisor community that I'm connected with said, hey, any of you advisors out there know of, you know, an advisor who wants to sell part or all of her or his firm, let me know. Mm -hmm. And almost immediately, Wayne Bloom, the CEO of Commonwealth, got in touch with me and he said, you know, we've known you for years, you're Commonwealth through and through. You meet none of our requirements, like yeah. literally none. But we'll let you work out of your house and see what happens. And the first two and a half years were really tough, but I finally figured it out. And here we are today. Wow, um, that's crazy story. So, I I know that you mentioned you tr you use some mindfulness and meditation and um, you know sort of help you overcome the challenges in your life. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and how that helped you, you know, get to a healthier place yeah I lost 60 pounds I made a few life changes I like to joke How did with you people lose 60 pounds so I, I like well, to back joke. up a minute yeah <laughs> yeah well I found myself educating advisors during the day and entertaining them at night yeah which is always a boondoggle right uh, lots of cocktails lots of calories and so forth and I remember thinking to myself I'm gonna go on a health kick I'm going to cut out all bad foods. I'm going to cut out alcohol entirely. And I did that for a month and I started feeling so good, sleeping better. I had more energy. I wasn't guzzling coffee all day. Mm. Full disclosure for listeners, I did have a double <laughs> espresso before we hopped on the show, but that's because of the time change. Anyway, <laughs> I did it as a health kick just to see how I felt. Mm -hmm. And I felt so good that I kept it going. 
and I now run on average between 32 and 40 miles a week. I wake up every day and I draft out by hand a gratitude list, the things for which I am most thankful, which interestingly are typically not material things. Like I'm thankful that I have a house. I'm thankful because there are lots of people, not only in our country, but in the world that don't have one. Mm -hmm. And when you go through a, a period of emotional stress, regardless of causal factors, stress is stress to the body. And when you have the level of grief, I mean, think about the emotionality I shared earlier. It's, it's there. It's under the surface. I've come to resolution with it. But when you go back to a place and time in your, in your composition, it's always there. Like, I miss those family members so much. My grandmother, my grandfather, my Aunt Val, my grandfather on the other side, and the relationships that I had with them were not the conventional, you know, hey, my grandparents went to Florida and brought me this t-shirt back type relation. I mean, we were very close in college when I was going to University of Maryland. I would very commonly go up to Kingwood, West Virginia and spend weekends there and mm -hmm. holidays there. I mean, they, they were just, we were so close. Mm. And I missed them tremendously. Um, so, I get up every day, I write a gratitude list of the things for which I'm most thankful. And when you remove certain behaviors from one's life or when you create a new paradigm for your own life, it's a shift that allows you to really endeavor introspection and question what matters most. And I always know when I'm getting too frenetic, right, or too stressed out that I have to just shut the laptop, back away from the email. Speaking of email, one of the best things I ever did for myself was remove my email address from the public domain. Mm. If people go to our website and want to contact me, they have to submit a request through the uh, the web page yeah. and I share with potential and current clients I go the reason it's not there is because I've done a fair amount of financial media engagements and I'm so thankful for the fourth estate thank you thank you thank you but when my email address was public I was getting a hundred to 150 emails a day and I could wow. not keep up with it yeah so I removed it. I just looked at the things in life that were time consuming and very stressful. And I'm going, do I really need to have this in my life? Mm -hmm. So made a few decisions to have a better diet, cut out alcohol, consistent exercise regimen, lots of stretching. I have two blown discs in my back and remember the pain I used to be in years ago. And I'm just so thankful that uh, I'm able to exercise the way that I am now. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. Um, I know my husband lost 60 pounds over the last couple of years, and um, he says, you know, he feels like he could eat more than he ever did before because he just eats different foods um, and just has so much more energy. It's true. It's so funny because I remember meeting runners Mm -hmm. throughout life. I'm going, why? Just literally, why? Like, really, I think I felt bad about myself. Right? Yeah. <laughs> why am I not that motivated to do that? Or alternatively, what would motivate someone to want to go and run 20, 30, 40 miles in a week? And an interesting thing happened with 
COVID, when I would put the kids in the stroller and go out, because I want to rewind real quick, back you know, 2015, when I started doing some level of exercise, it was not long distance running at all. It was a measly mile, maybe a mile and a half. Oh my goodness, I can't take it. The sweat, yeah. the agony, the pain. I, I hate running, to be, <laughs> to be honest, I hate it. So COVID hits and I would put one or both kids in the single or double stroller respectively. And I would just start jogging. And I wouldn't think about the distance. I would just go for time. And what's interesting is one day we were coming back from Costco and I said to my wife, Jody, I went, honey, I, I'm just going to go ahead and drive the distance that I'm running with the kids. And I could not believe it. It was six wow. and a half miles. And I went, this is a mistake. I did it again and it was six and a half miles. And I went, you couldn't pay me to run six and a half miles. Yeah. There's no way. And when I realized that it was six and a half miles, it's a 10K is 6.2 miles. I went, that's my, that's my mind. That's all psychological. I cannot believe I've been running a little more than a 10K three days a week. No wonder I can eat as much pizza and ice cream as I yeah. want. <laughs> and, and your body is hungry for it. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah, your body just gets used to it after a while. It right? does. Yeah. If I don't run for three or four days, I start to get itchy. I can mm. feel, I just, Yeah. you want to do it, you know? Mm -hmm. So uh, just one, one last question, Vance. How do you think you know, your experiences and your journey have shaped the work you're doing today and the person that you are today? Empathy and technical expertise. Mm. When I meet with current and potential clients. We don't talk at first about dollar sign related decisions. This is not a plug. This is not an advertisement. Yeah, this course. is the God's honest truth. Like someone's referred to us or if the universe just brings people. I've met multiple clients on flights, a couple on elevators. Like I've just never met a stranger. Mm -hmm. When you, when you have the ability to empathize with someone and truly understand who they are, what makes them tick, what their passions are, and what their fears are, when you understand them, you can understand the things that you have, proclivities, technical expertise, whatever, to bring maximum value to mm -hmm. another human being. And in the context of the things I went through, seven to eight years ago, you can now fully understand why I take this role and its inherent responsibilities so seriously. Because these aren't just clients. I don't have 800 households. We have, call it 50, mm -hmm. and they're all around the country. And I feel so fortunate to have the significant role in their lives that I do. And it's not just me, it's the team. But the ability to understand all the things that you need to understand about this human being so that you can leverage your expertise to bring maximum value. And in almost all cases, it's in ways that they're completely not used to receiving service mm. or strategies, right? Mm -hmm. so we'll have clients that will transfer in their accounts and they're loaded up with these expensive tax inefficient mutual funds. How do we solve 
for the high cost and the tax inefficiency. How do we use advanced trusts like IGITs, ILETs, GROTs, QPERTs? And I'll stop there because I don't want to give away too much and make people's eyes roll, right? I call it the acronyms. How do we leverage those strategies so that the things that this human being, or in the case of married couples, these human beings want to achieve together, which almost never have to do with money. Mm. I mean, we're all, like life is in session. We're all front stage and center in our lives. My role ultimately is to take care of all of the dollar sign related decisions so that the person who has trusted us to serve in this capacity as in-house fiduciary, financial planner, and most trusted advisor, et cetera, et cetera, allows them to live the life that they want to live. And that's how it's helped. And it's all come full circle. And I'm just so appreciative. Yeah, that's great. Um, Well, I'm afraid we're just about out of time. Um, But I'd like to thank my guest, Vance Bars, for being on the podcast and just being so vulnerable and opening up to us. Um, Just thank you so much, Vance. Thank you for having me. It truly has been a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, it's been it's been a wonderful conversation. Um, If you'd like to reach out to Vance, if you want to get in touch with him, you can uh, reach out to him on LinkedIn or Twitter. And if you yourself have a struggle struggle and you wish to share your experiences and help others in similar situations, please feel free to reach out to me at diana.britton at informa.com. I'd like to thank you for listening to The Healthy Advisor. If you've not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This is Diana Britton reminding you that where there's healing, there is hope. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to The Healthy Advisor, a podcast focused on advisors' personal well-being and healing. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of wealthmanagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice. Always seek the advice of your healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding your particular situation.